Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. George Skouras of Skouras from the Peloponnese in Greece on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very exciting to be with you. Very nice to see you. So about 40 years ago, you were in France studying how to make wine. Exactly. That was like uh, the end of the 70s. And I went there to exactly to do things, you know, to have some studies in chemistry, things like that. But I became a guy who was uh, involved with wine. And how did that happen? I mean, what what occurred to change your mind? Oh, that's a beautiful story. That um, I was a dog in in Aix-en-Provence, and uh, I had time. I just uh, that was just some days, uh, you know, just to learn French and uh, to decide what to do. And a friend of mine, a professor of uh, Greeks Greek letters, asked me to go with him uh, to go an excursion. You know, so we've uh, we. Took a car and uh, we went uh, to Montpellier, Languedoc, you know. And it is, uh, it was like a uh, discovery to me. It was, I was uh, with this small car, a Peugeot, Peugeot 204. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it was like a, to, uh, to be in a sea of vineyards. I was amazed. And then we arrived to, uh, to a small chateau. And then a couple of, uh, some friends of him, uh, a nice couple, it is like a film. They waited us uh, in the front of the chateau behind a nice iron door. And then they opened the door with all these noises, you know, the door was doing. And after the door, it was the apocalypse for me. Because uh, that was a winery. That was a chateau with a winery and vineyard. And as I was the young guys, these guys, they took me by the hand and they started to show to me how the vineyards are and then what it is, the wine, see all the facilities, the, the, the cellars and everything. Then when um, lunch started, uh, we never stopped. We went uh, until dinner because um, they were so grateful to me to start to ask me, you know, uh, what is the age of your father? Aha, this year, 1929, uh, it was marvelous. Let's, uh, let's pick a, a bottle of that. Uh, what is that? And what is that? And what is that? And uh, I was amazed, really amazed. And then after that, I had not, there was no possibility 
to speak and to, you know, I was uh, speechless. Like to see, like I had to see something, the best theater in my life. And two days later, when I arrived in the university, I went to the secretary and I started to see something with wine. And I saw the word enology. Enology, which is enologia, that's a Greek word. And I said, that's me. I'll do that. And you'd grown up in Greece or? I'm coming from Peloponnese, from um, a city in Peloponnese called Argos, which is next to Nemea. Uh, I had nothing to do with uh, wine. I had a lot to do with commerce because my father was in the commerce and um, with a beautiful epicerie. And I learned from him a lot. I learned from him to be, you know, correct with the people, to give to the people right things, good things, and uh, to respect everything in the business. Uh, I finished my, my school in Greece and 18 years old, uh, I went in France for having studies. And um, 19 years old, I started to do to the wine business. How long were you in France? Five years. Uh, you know, this, this, I told you about this professor. So this professor was uh, one of, of my five mentors. Why? Because he called another professor in uh, the University of Dijon, Mr. Bergeret. He called him and he told that, uh, you know, there's a guy, Greg, he wants to be uh, an ologist. Mr. Bergeret was uh, one of the, of the professors, uh, you know, uh, of, the, uh, of the guys the start and everything about enology and the science of enology in, um, in Dijon. And um, he asked me, okay, George, you want to really, really, you want to, to know about the wine and winemaking? Yes. Okay, look at that. There's a big problem because, you know, when you will go to the university with uh, your other, uh, other guys there, you will see that everyone from them, they come from families, they are winemakers, they have vineyards, they, yeah. And uh, when I'm speaking and say, like, I take the pipe and I do a, a remote pump over, you will understand nothing. So you need to work in the French vineyard. And yes, that's what I did. Five years, I didn't take a break. I was, I was working all over in Alsace, in Champagne, in France, all over France. I mean, Burgundy, Beaujolais, uh, all over. And um, I did every, everything. I did um, from nothing to everything. And that was my great, greatest, greatest school because like that I became one of them. And uh, that was, uh, you know, for all my life. It was uh, the biggest uh, possibility to see the world of the wine. And I was in love of the wine. That means passion. When you think about what was happening in Greece in the late 70s. Yeah, late 70s uh, in Greece, uh, the wine was nothing. When I came back, uh, it was like uh, 83. Um, and uh, I started to work uh, for a company uh, at Kefalonia. Uh, it was like uh, 70 wineries all over Greece. That's all. But in the meantime, people like me, without knowing each other, 
you know, famous people now, Mr. Yuri Vasiliou, Mr. Telepos, Yanis Paraskevopoulos, Paris Sigalas, you know, all these guys. We were in the same time having, having studies in France, in Italy, in California. And then we came back. And then we started working in several wineries. And then we started our thing. And then we met each other. That was the best. And that was the, the most um, nice thing that happened to the Greek wine. Because when we met each other, we put together a beautiful uh, federation. And we started to, um, to connect, you know, each other and speaking about that and understand that we have to do a lot of things and organize our uh, trips and um, exports and, you know. But it was hard times. So uh, when I went in, uh, in Kefalunya, I was there and, and I work uh, on the Caligas, it is not uh, anymore, Caligas uh, winery. Um, especially doing a lot, a lot of wines from Kefalonia, you know, the Robola stuff, Mavro Daphne, and a lot of uh, other local varieties. It was something very important for me because uh, it was another life to see some other things. I knew nothing about Greek varieties, nothing about Greek varieties. And uh, it was a very nice uh, moment to, uh, to discover everything and to do some good things. And suddenly there, I met a guy. I met a guy, Spiros Cosmetatos, a strange guy, who wanted to make wine. So I went to see him uh, in his house and I found him with some, um, you know, some small um, dummies in which there was a Jewish of um of grapes uh like kits you know and um and some some uh yes and trying to do wine like that <laughs> i said okay this is no how we make the wine and we started to work together he already planned some vineyards and we create a whole winery from nothing this guy was uh another matter for me it was the guy who teached me how to do everything with nothing. It is always something to put in the mind that I have to do that and then to prepare how to do that, you know. And that was, um, yeah, we create this beautiful Gentilini uh, vineyard, Gentilini winery. It was a wine uh, white. Uh, and uh, the, this wine was like, uh, if I remember, much, much more expensive than every other Greek wine. And that worked. People loved the wine. We started to have beautiful uh, vintages uh, together, harvest together. And um, that, uh, that worked very, very, very much. Kefalonia is uh, an island, and there had been a large earthquake in the 50s. And so what was it like for you when you were there? Kefalonia, when I been there, it was an island after the earthquakes, as you say, and uh, it was practically without people in Ireland because after the earthquakes, a lot of people went out of Kefalonia having other business all over, you know, United States or I don't know where. So Kefalonia, it was uh, for me like uh, El Dorado, you know, uh, um, it, it was like, uh, oh, what? There is so beautiful things to do here. Argostoli uh, was uh, a town with 1,500 uh, people, <laughs> which now it is more than 12,000 12, people. 
and uh you know it was uh, it was really a, a lot of abandoned vineyards and it was a big challenge to me to see and walk all with all these people and uh, because people they had a beautiful culture about wine and wine making Kefalonia was uh, very famous from the 18th century because uh, in Kefalonia there was the famous vinarias and vinarias was wineries and uh, a lot of ships came there and took some beautiful wines, especially from Mavro Daphne and Moscato sweet wines. Because also, Kefalonia, it, was an, it is an island in which there was a lot of Venetians. It was under occupation of Venetians in the times. Uh, so there was all this beautiful, you know, culture about, about wine, sweet wines and everything. Yeah. And of course, very beautiful vineyards too. Spiros Kosmatatos, where was he coming from? What was his background that he decided to make wine in Kefalonia when there was very, very few wineries there? Spiros Kosmatatos was a, was a guy who lived in uh, in, in uh, United Kingdom. And uh, he decided to be winemaker. And first, he decided to be winemaker in United Kingdom. And he tried to buy, <laughs> unbelievable, 70s. Uh, that's 70s. And he tried to buy land there, if I remember well. But as he, uh, he was from Kefalonia, he came back. And um, because he, he had some land and everything, he starts to do some things there. And also, there's a, there's a book. He wrote a book about that. Because it was a real unbelievable moment to be two people together and other guys together with us and to set up uh, uh, a brand new winery, really excellent with, you know, everything. But he kind of also taught you how to kind of start with no money. Yes, you know, money, it is something, money, you can, you can find money. It's not yours, but uh, you can find money. Uh, the thing is, and Pius uh, Cosmetatos teached me something, the scenarios. So it was, first of all, the scenario of success. And you do your best and you have success. That's the good scenario. Okay. And then another scenario, the scenario which is uh, already success, you see. That means that uh, you start, everything is okay, but you have to do more and more and more to be really successful. Another scenario which was very important for me, the scenario of destroy everything and what to do, how to think about that scenario to don't go to the jail because you own money and because I don't know what. So these three scenarios, it was a very, very important. It was something which helped me a lot. As a young person, Spiros Cosmetatos taught you that there was open possibility that you could kind of set your own thing and even if you weren't well-funded, you could start a winery and find the material in this land where there weren't a lot of people working with wine, even though historically there had been a long tradition. And he also kind of put some goalposts out for you to think about long-term what kind of future you wanted to have. Yes, 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 of course, yes. As you put that, uh, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, also, Spiros Cosmetatos um, showed to me the possibility to do things to be other than enologist and winemaker, to be a human being having a lot of different ways of thinking, and uh, you know, to be also 
businessman, which is another thing, <laughs> uh, because after all, uh, it is something. It must have been, um, take some, in a way, either foresight or courage to price a white wine from Kefalonia as high as that Robola that you released was. So what was the thinking there? Because it ended up being a success, but you know it was much more uh, pricey than the neighboring wines at the time. Yeah, it was like that. Yeah, it was like that. Uh, but a guy in Athens, uh, Vangelis, uh, adopt our. Uh, he was he was in the wine business. Adopt our uh, you know our efforts, and you know we had all these high costs. It was uh, unbelievable the cost. It was something very high, and um, he he says, okay, don't worry, I we will put it in the market, and because it is. Uh, the highest price existing in the market, it will work. And it worked, you know. And um, I remember it was uh, a lot of people who tasted that wine and was, um, uh, you know, so clean style, beautiful acidity, crispy. You know, acidity, it was in the time, at the time, something very difficult to understand because the most of the people uh, they did the harvest at 13, 14, uh, I don't know what, 15 degrees of alcohol. And we had like uh, 11.5, all 12. And of course, crispy acidities and crispy fruits. And that helped a lot. And people liked the wine and that's all. It was a clean, fresh, modern expression, which was a new thing for Greece. Yeah, I think it is, um, it is, it is a style. Greece uh, has all these beautiful... Uh, mountains and um, you know the islands and the climate it is unbelievable uh, the freshness of the grapes uh, existing there and the health yeah, the health of the grapes also and that helps a lot to have um, crispy fruit and of course having a nice wine after that because after all what is the wine it is an excellent fruit which uh, the juice of which become a wine and um, you have a health fruity fruit, and if you do what we have to do, then the wine will be amazing. No one had really come in to do a clean, crisper style yet, and you kind of pioneered that in Kefalonia. Yeah, that was uh, we did, <laughs> uh, without knowing what uh, what exactly we did. <laughs> when we come back from the break, George Skouros makes a decisive move. You returned to where you grew up. You went back to Nemea. That's coming up right after this. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. 
in North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Then you decided to do kind of what Spiros did. You returned to where you grew up. You went back to Nemea. Yeah, actually with uh, Spiros we created another kind of business like a wine club because uh, we uh, found that uh, there's, there was a lot of people who loved the wine and who had to have a like, like a club and something like that. So we created this uh, this club, but I'm not the best for manage that. So I took the, the challenge for um, the next three, four, five years, but very quickly, you know, I am a winemaker. I, I am somebody who belongs to the uh, land. Um, I came back in, uh, in to to my house, to my region, and I took my um, uh, my motocross, a Kawasaki two fifty, and with uh, my motocross, I discovered the whole thing, and it was big, unbelievable. Starting by six hundred feet of altitude and go up to thirty four hundred feet of altitude. Come on, unbelievable, and. Uh, that was not only in EMEA. It took me years and years to discover everything, to decide what part uh, of land, what part, what type of microclimate. Because in EMEA, it's, a, it's something really very challenging. There are 17 villages. There are about uh, more than 24 small plateaus between mountains. All those mountains uh, create great differentiations on the soil. So we have all the type of the soils, rocky soils, calcareous soils, sandy soils. And another thing, very important, it was the microclimate. Why in Peloponnese do we speak about mountains? I will tell you why. Peloponnese, it's south. South must be higher, higher temperatures. When you go to have something near to the top of the mountain. When I see the top of a mountain, because of the cooler climate, I say, this is the uh, refrigerator to my land, you know, of my land. Because all these cool, beautiful, colder temperatures goes down, and that makes very nice conditions um, for making vineyards and uh, having grapes. That's one thing. The other thing it is Peloponnese, uh, mind you, it is, uh, it's like an island. It is untoured by the ocean, untoured by seawater. And uh, every day, every day, there is a lot from every direction, there is winds coming from the sea to the mainland. Those winds go through the, the mountains, and um, through the mountains, they accelerate themselves because of the phenomenon Bernoulli. And uh, like that, we have windy conditions. Windy conditions means no humidity. No humidity means no pesticides. No pesticides means healthy grapes. What else? That's fantastic, you see. To discover all that, understand all that, it took me, it took me a lot of time. I do this job with the Nemea 30 years, and now I start, you know, because now I have the whole thing to me. Believe me or not, uh, when I started to do my first wine there, 
in the garage of my father because that was my first winery with two, three wine barrels and uh, rending facilities, rending vinegars all over. Um, when I started to do that, I had not uh, confiance in the Ayurgetico grape. I didn't know. So I put a 20% of Cabernet Sauvignon just for give to the wine a guarantee of life. Hmm? But that was the first ever, never blend in Greece between a local variety and uh, a cosmopolitan variety. And that was a school after that. <laughs> Everybody now does that. So that works. But of course, in the meantime, uh, I took the challenge to understand better the Ayurgetico and to know exactly what Ayurgetico from where and what, uh, you know, what village and what uh, plateau or side, it's the better. So now we have uh, beautiful vineyards all over and we can do a lot of, uh, you know, we will present new things. Nemea is in the Peloponnese, which is an island, which is where Sparta is. It's off and to the south of Athens. And where you went is in the south of the Peloponnese in Nemea, which is an area that's well known for red wine. There wasn't a lot going on in terms of industry for wine in the 80s. In the 80s, it was like uh, the Cooperativa and a lot of bulk wine and a lot of wine making for the big guys of Greece and uh, no values. You know, it, it was uh, everything and nothing, you know. As uh, many people describe us like uh, pioneers, we started to create our thing. And that was an excellent example because other people saw that and the other people jumped to that. Uh, when I started to do my first winery, my personal facilities at Yimno, uh, at Neme, it was uh, 1996. And it was the first, the first... Uh, like licensed winery? Yeah, exactly. It was like a fire after that. Uh, a fire who brought uh, a lot of wineries into and started to work with the grapes and the vineyards. And uh, believe me or not, uh, all these beautiful wineries, there are beautiful wineries because all these wineries from 80s to 90s and after, uh, they are modern. They have high techniques and uh, high materials, uh, machinery and everything. And um, that was a good gift for the next generation. But of course, uh, there was something difficult, which is the difficult part. It was the divine growers. And it was uh, the uh, how to, uh, you know, to adopt new systems, how to understand the agriculture, how to change or not the, um, the cultivations, do we have clones, uh, irrigation, what about irrigation we need or we, not, we don't? There's a, you know, a big, big, big amount of uh, problems and um, a lot of the Ayurgetico, the Ayurgetico grape variety has uh, viruses and we have to clean up everything and to remake things. That's problems, but that's challenge too, are you see? And I can see that uh, it took a lot of time to understand. And uh, now a lot of uh, young guys, younger than me, they start to, to create new vineyards and understand how, how to do yields. It's something very important, you know, 
when there is irrigation, maybe yields will go high very quickly, and everybody knows that uh, that's not the good wine. So the native grape variety in red in that area in Nemea is Aguiertico, as you said. And one of your real innovations was that you blended in some Cabernet into one of your Aguiertico, about 20% Cab. That became Megas Anis, and that became a big success. And it really broke open some international markets. Right, right. Uh, Megas Anis, it was, uh, as I told you, my first uh, production, 6,000 bottles was my first production. And uh, in the meantime, without knowing what I did, what I have did, I discovered that also Mega Sinusit was my passport to the exports, you know. Because at the time, uh, Greek wine was a synonym to retina. And Greek wine was a synonym to very bad image. Uh, as I started to be um, in my booths and, uh, you know, in uh, expositions all over the world, uh, people look at, uh, at, at my wines and said, what? Do you make wine in Greece, really? You make Retsina, guys. I was furious. I was furious. And then starting to say that uh, this is an Ayurgetico, which was really very difficult to pronounce, difficult to understand. And what it is the Ayurgetico, it seems like what? It is uh, like a uh, mm, mm, bad. I had the, the, the magical world that was uh, Ayurgetico and Cabernet Sauvignon. People was like, what? Cabernet Sauvignon? Let's try that. And after that, oh, this is right. This is very nice. It's very, you know, elegant. And, and what it is, the other, Agiorgitico. And like that, we started to open the doors of the international market with this wine, with Megasinus. It is not only about Greek wine. It's about the uh, world wine. I mean... Uh, well, people like me knew the wine on the 70s and 80s. It was a totally different thing than what it is today. They have a lot of winers, a lot of wines, a lot of styles, a lot of... Um, it's unbelievable. There is everything. There is... A, I don't know if it is everything in discipline or not. I don't know what it is discipline to the wine. <laughs> But uh, first of all, it's business. And business started from the United States. You know, when the United States started to sell wine, it was, um, I remember that, it was like uh, 80s. And uh, the wine, uh, when it's business in the United States and liquor business and things like that and alcohol business, must be quick and must have consumption. The wine said it was like... Uh, 15 to 16 degrees of alcohol, full of uh, color and the big reds from California, you know. And of course, you, it was very easy to spend the night with a glass of wine. Many, many changes came from then. Huh? Now the wines, everybody likes uh, lighter wines, everybody likes, you know, the Pinot Noir and I don't know what, and uh, it changed a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. I have to say that people became more educated about the wine, and of course, also the guys, the people, the business guys, the, the salesmen, everybody, they are educated. And that's very important. Because um, 
if you are somebody who sells wines and you have somebody who wants to pick a bottle, you have to understand what is style, what you like, and then to give to you the right, the right selection. So this changed a lot of things. And of course now, Everybody looks uh, for 100% Ayurvedico from there or there or there, from the best vineyards. And of course, that's a success. You also make a couple of 100% Ayurvedico. So how do you find that they differ? Okay, let's speak a little bit about Ayurvedico. Ayurvedico normally, it is, um, you know, thin skins. And thin skins, it's not uh, very nice for having structure. So I started to, uh, to see a little bit having all this experience I had about the Pinot Noir. I like a Pinot Noir. So uh, I tried to, to, to give a little bit of massage on the, uh, on the skin, having the Ayurvedicos plantations to some uh, vinegars in which there are big differences between uh, day and night. And wind, wind also, it's, it's a massage to the grapes, you know. And, uh, we saw that uh, the um, the skins be, became thicker. Huh? Uh, that's that was a very nice technique. It took time. It took that's I'm speaking like that, but it it was like 15 years to understand that. And then another thing, it is uh, hmm, may I take some beautiful tannins from the seeds? And we started to uh, to think about that and to work on that. So. Our Ayurvedicos, it's always based on, you know, on techniques in which, um, for example, we do delestage. Delestage, why? Just to take some beautiful things from the seeds. But of course, seeds and grapes and skins and pulps must be really very well ripe. Hmm? If there is this ripeness, then the Ayurvedico becomes so nice because you can take all this stuff. Ayurvedico has the aromas of uh, every small red fruit existing in the world. You have all these kind of berries, all these berries and cherries. Cherries, Ayurvedico loves cherries. And the liqueur de cerise also on the Ayurvedicos. And you have uh, also a very characteristic violet on the nose and maybe some carnation flower. That's Ayurvedico on the nose. And, and the palate, it is, it is, smooth, very nice tannins. Tannins can be, they're easy to be drinking now, but also 20 years later. And the whole thing is to have uh, the right yields. And that's something very important. So now we know about yields, we know about extractions, we know about techniques, and of course we do some Ayurgeticos. We have a lot of different wines, but we do uh, St. George, which is translation of Ayurgetico, years and years and years now, which is for us, it, it is all I described. You have everything. It is a very gentle and very elegant. Of course, in our winery also, there is um, this philosophy of uh, winemaking, which is um, we don't care about colors. We don't care about uh, a lot of things, which is only technicity. We care about right fruits, nice fruits, and elegant wines. And elegance is for us something very important. The other extreme Ayurgitko we have is the Grand Cuvée. Grand Cuvée comes from high, from Asprocabos. 
more than 3,000 feet of altitude. Up there, it's cold. And uh, we have kind of uh, maturation uh, over the second week of October. When, I, when we finish everything in the second week of <laughs> on September, so up there, because of the very, very cold climate, all these fruits, it's like to have your fruits in your refrigerator. It is not red to black, it's green to red. And that's something very important. And of course, acidity. Oh, wire acidity, which is so nice to have for these kind of red wines. You can also have a, a fish uh, with an agriculture like that. And terroir, a unique terroir of deep red soil, uh, which that means, you know, a lot of uh, minerals in that, some volcanic items. And I'm going to, to have a walk in the vineyard and the vineyard smell like copper coins. That's also fantastic. We do a big skin contact when we have a good ripeness. Contacts like um, 20, 25, 30 days. And uh, suddenly after the, um, the press of the grapes, we go quickly in our barrels, wood, in which we have the malolactic. And then surely for the next year, which is also very nice because Ayurgetical loves to be surely. It's very well protected and it gets a lot of beautiful, you know, structure from that. So basically what you found was that if you put the plantings in a windier area, you got thicker skins, which helped you with both tannins and with color. And you also found that if you put the plantings higher up, you maintained acidity for a grape variety that can have a straightforward fruit in youth. And so you wanted more zip. And you found that by avoiding oxidation during the winemaking process, you could preserve fruit. And that a lazy character gave you more complex wine. So it's a combination of where you decided to plant, how you decided to grow it, and then what you did in the winery after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, of course, Another factor uh, I told it is yields. Yields, it's unbelievable. In our magazines, even if we have yields like a 30 hecto hectare, and other vineyards, they are like 50, and other like 100 hecto hectare. Uh, it is a lot of different yields. And this is another obscure thing it is irrigation. Yes, irrigation, yes or not? And how? And how much? Hmm, that's, that's something, because um, some days in Greece, there is uh, some summers really, really, really hot, and uh, the vineyards suffered, and it's not good for them. Of course, we calculate the stress and everything in the vineyard to have the best, and we know that uh, this stress and vinegar give nice, nice wines, but sometimes it is too much. So... If there is possibility to have some irrigations, uh, we do. But uh, some excellent vineyards existing in uh, on the mountains is not possible to have water for that. Others in the plateaus, it's easy to have water, and maybe there we have a lot of water. <laughs> it is something very important to all those factors you mentioned uh, to have the right decision for yields. Yields is very important for the irrigation. We know the low yields, it is fantastic wine. And uh, after the 50 
it is a little bit scary what kind of wine will be. Of course, of course, Ayurgitko is very famous also to produce uh, everyday wine, you know, and rosé wine and, and a lot of things, a lot of different wines and the styles. And of course, all these, you know, there are a market for that. But I'm speaking always from high-end Ayurgitiko and um, how we think to be the Ayurgitiko. And another factor, it is to clean Ayurgitiko from the viruses and to replanting really clean, clean, clean Ayurgitiko, which is also a very big challenge. So when Yanis Paraskovlapoulos was here, who also makes wine in Emea, he said it, it was quite difficult to convince the growers to lower yields because they weren't into it. <laughs> so did you um, have a lot of conversations that were a little bit difficult with people who didn't want to lower yields? Or? Look, everything is easy to put in the table because everything costs money. If money is enough, then people decide to go lower and uh, to give you uh, other kind of rates. If not, it's a problem. You see? That's one thing. Of course, uh, the one I'm speaking about, the Ayurgitico, I'm speaking about my Ayurgitico's vineyards and what I'm doing with my vineyard. Uh, but uh, if you ask me if uh, I use all those vineyards, I use for other wines. There's a beautiful team with me, and we try to do our best. Costas Bacchus was here and he spoke about Aguiertico and he said that all of it's virus and that it's been a slow process to get it cleaned. When you get clones that are clean for Aguiertico and you plant them, what different characteristics occur? We don't know. We don't know. All we know it is that it's a nice challenge coming. Just uh, to restart planting new clones, um, clean clones and everything, you know. Uh, and of course, Costas Bacasietas did a um, lot of work about that. And uh, I have to thank him. And speaking from the next generation, that will be something very important. One of the things that you did was really identify different characteristics of different terroirs within Nemea. And there are 17 different zones of Nemea for wine growing. And so, what are those and, and how do they differ? I can tell you about mine. We know that Yimno zone, our vineyards at Yimno, which is a totally different than uh, the profile of soil. There's no soil, there's only, only rocks. It's my rock and roll wines there, uh, vineyards there. This environment, this terroir, give to us elegance. That's it. It's elegance, balance between the fruit, the alcohol, and uh, components. If we go to Kuti, it's another type because we have uh, calcareous um, soils and it is, it is affected by the sea winds over there and the style, it is uh, it's darker, not alcoholic, but more rich if you want, less acidic, but really excellent. It's, it's a vinegar to do big and great wines. And if you go to Daphne, which is another place we have vineyards, it is a little bit higher and um, we have a, a lot of types there of, of soils, but uh, there is no irrigation and because of that you have a low yield and again, concentration, color, very nice uh, grapes to, to do big wines. And then we go up to Asprocamos and oh, that's, that's the extreme and I love extreme. 
and pH like 3.1. Very high acidities and uh, crispness and uh, skins and um, wines with a lot of sparkling acidity, red wines. I love them. And we have some vinegar at Malandreni, which is the lower part. It is like uh, 600 feet of altitude. And, and, and there, it's, a, it's another style. It's a more alcoholic, but still with less, less fruity, less fruity, but still uh, with a lot of nice concentration and very nice uh, tannins, those wines. As you indicated before, most people blend a lot of these regions together into their Nemea red. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it is, um, you know, something, this is inspiration for me. It is like to imagine a guy walk uh, with just one variety. <laughs> That's a problem. But imagine a guy who walks with one variety in 17 different places and having, I don't know how many different profiles. That's inspiration every year to say, oh, this year, this is very nice, the other is destroyed, but there it is excellent, and let's do that, and let's do that. You know, I had some uh, lessons of Courtier when I was in Beaujolais. Courtier is the guy who knows exactly all the vineyards, and he takes all the uh, different uh, wines, and he does blends, and suddenly the wine becomes fantastic. That's something like that. All this possibility. One of the things I've noticed is that Acertico planted in northern Greece tastes wildly different than any Acertico I've had from Santorini. So obviously there are differences in Santorini, but the difference is much bigger when you get off the island. And so in terms of Nemea for Agiertico, there are differences that you just explained, but is it much different than the Agiertico grown further to the north in Greece? You know, 90s, it was very fashionable, the Eurytico, and uh, many, many um, winemakers, uh, um, vine growers, they took some and planted all over Greece. Very few of them, they are successful. Very few of them. Uh, and, of course, the same, because uh, I'm a Moscofilero guy too. And the same goes with the Moscofilero. And I can tell you the Moscofilero, nothing. It is not possible to plant this, this plant outside of uh, its land. Unbelievable. The Ayurgitico, of course, but Ayurgitico, it's a fragile. It is a, it's a grape variety who can be destroyed at the last moment with just uh, two, three uh, rains at the last moment can be destroyed. So, because of the thin skins. So, uh, it is not for everybody. And, uh, of course, to be there, like, uh, what, 5,000 years? <laughs> you know that in our area, it is an area with a lot of history. The Hercules, uh, there is the turmoil of, uh, of Zeus and everything, Mykines and everything. So there's a lot of archaeologists who does excavations, and they found seeds, you know, seeds of grapes. And they could calculate that uh, 5,000 years before, this place had vineyards and wine. Now, the Ayurgitico, it is, um, I think, it is just for the man. After a word from our sponsor, we'll arrive at a big reveal. A secret to George's work with Agiertico. 
I see. So you consider that a key? It is. That and more? Right after a short message. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Working with Aguiar to go like, do people use whole cluster? Do people use stems? The most, uh, um, I'm doing that also, it is to this team. If you have time and to wait, you can also do the whole clusters. Whole clusters give some, of course, some structure, but uh, the very first use, it is too green for the Uriedico. It's not possible to have some, something what we call normal, because I like a normal wine too. And you also ferment in stainless steel. We ferment in stainless steel. I belong, uh, I belong to the generation which really did everything, and I will do everything. So stainless steel for us, it was something clean and nice and working with that. And the last year, we started to work a little bit with the uh, cement and um, some, some amphoras, just to show what it is and you know, styles and things like that. Of course, stainless steel, it is the 97% of my facilities. And Aguirretico, is that something where you have to be careful about the press wine? The Aguirretico, uh, you have to don't care about press. You know, you take what you take, and then presses, it's not... Uh, I, I personally avoid presses. We know that uh, the best of the best, uh, it is everything free countries. I'm doing... To all my reds like that, yeah. Because I can see in the texture that that's probably true. You don't find the harshness that you might find otherwise. Ayurgitico means style in my world of Ayurgiticos. It is nice tannin, round wines. You know, when you have uh, a lot of tannins, because we did that also, all the guys you know, uh, in uh, in the Yurgitico in the 90s and uh, later, we did uh, big extractions, uh, big, big things to get, uh, you know, the, the big red wine. And all of us, we became gentle with the Yurgitico back. Personally, I'm very, I'm persuaded that, uh, you know, it is better with the Yurgitico to do just uh, elegant wines and not more than that. I also feel like there's been some good quality cooperage with your wines. I can't imagine that there would have been high quality cooperage frequently used in Nemea in the 80s when you got there. Yeah, you know, 
uh, when we started, we did uh, everything. <laughs> I, I knew nothing. I know nothing. I have discovered everything. Let's bring here everything. So I brought the different sources of uh, oak existing in Europe. I brought from Russian Caucasus oak. I brought uh, from Slovenia. I brought from, um, from France, of course, from uh, the north of Italy and uh, some uh, from Switzerland. And of course, all these beautiful different uh, forests of France. Okay, I can tell you that Ayurvedico is good with uh, what we call the central massif of France, which is uh, the Allier and Nevers. If you do a Limousin or a Troncet, the Ayurvedico, you can destroy it because Ayurvedico is so fragile. So when I, we found what type of uh, how good it is for using, then we started to see how, how to avoid all this attack from the wood to the Ayurvedico. And uh, we went further, and uh, we discovered that to have a beautiful barless, beautiful wood, we have to give to them a lot of time to be drained. So we buy wood, no barley. And all the staves stayed out to be drained for four years. Four years later, there is no lignins, there are no problems. And the bars can accept this beautiful Ayurvedico and respect the Ayurvedico because in our winery we have more than 1,000 bars and we uh, detest to smell uh, good in our wines. The Ayurvedico in Grand Cuvée stays uh, 12 months in the, in the oak. The uh, Megacin stays like 20, 22, 24, depends. We rock like, like six months. And then when everything is ready, we go to the bottle and then we wait a little bit, two years, three years later, start. Because Ayurvedico is fragile, don't like the oxidation very quickly. As a grape variety, is Ayurvedico sensitive to oxidation in the winery? I avoid oxidation in the winery. Is it hard to avoid it? The presence of the lees and on our barrels it's a very beautiful protection to the fruit of the Ayurvedico. First of all, when we start, after the malolactic fermentation, we take out all the wine and we take separately the leaves. And then we bring leaves from the last year, we have in barrels, and we put together. And we start to steer for a month just leaves to give to them, uh, to diminuate the power of uh, reduction. And then we re-put the lease in the barrels. And then we stay in the lease six months. And then we redo this thing after six months. And then all this, all this um, it is to, to have a really very, very fine lease, a beautiful amount of them, because lease, you know, it's about autolysis, it's about dead cellules of yeast, and, and those dead cellulose of yeast give a lot of protection on the fruit, as you know, and the wine become fatter. But it is a lot of work, a lot of work. It is a technique I learned a lot in Burgundy. And it is a technique come from the whites. Oh, interesting. Are they white wine leaves or are they red wine leaves? No, 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 red wine, red oh. wine leaves, red wine. I see. So you consider that a key, the leaves contact? It is. 
It is. It is one of the keys, of course. There is that. I always say that, uh, uh, you know, the big difference from something to something else, it's just a small details, but all together. Huh? And what about the aromas of Aguiertico? How does it change over time in the bottle? Sometimes to me, Aguiertico starts like a bottle and going to after years like, uh, like, uh, like Burgundy's. It is uh, so fine, so clean and clear, uh, without a lot of color. It's an adorable wine to have 20 years later. So what you can see, it is, uh, it is an evolution of the aromas. Of course, all the primary aromas of the red fruits become very different, you know, very like plums and like uh, more dark aromas. That's interesting because I was going to ask you what other grape variety you would compare it to. You know, sometimes people say Merlot or sometimes... Yeah. Because of uh, the different styles existing in the vineyards of the Agurigitico, it's also a tricky question, you know, because there's people, they say, ah, this is like a Sangiovese. There are people, they say, oh, this is very Pinot-like. There are people, they say, oh, this is very Bordeaux style. Agurigitico is Agurigitico. It's what it is. Depends from where it comes. And that's all. You make, as you said, the Grand Cuvée, which is 100% Aguiertico, and then you make the Megasens, which is the blend with the Cabernet. And you've done verticals of those going back quite a ways. So as they age, what do you see as the difference between those two wines? Yeah, they both age very well. From uh, the Grand Cuvée, I had some extreme uh, vintages, 2004, for example. <laughs> it was a vintage. It was a, such a cold year. It was a vintage. When the grapes arrived to the winery, it was more than 12 grams per liter of the acidity. It took for us two years to make a malolactic fermentation and to have a diminution of the acidity. And when we finished and we put the wine in the bottles, the wine was undrinkable. Then we put the wine in the cellar and 2014, some 10 years later, we released the wine, and the wine was just marvelous. You see what I mean? That's extreme. That's extreme. Tasting your wines, the aging curve, you know, you can do 20 years, seems like, in a bottle. Does that seem fair to you? Yeah. Our Grand Cuvées, uh, Megasinos for sure, Grand Cuvées and the Sinoros, we have another, it's another wine we do, it's another blend uh, with uh, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and the Yeritico in between of them. Yes, um, we have, you know, people ask me how this wine age, and, and this question was uh, to me some 20 years before. And I, I, I said that I don't know. I don't know. I have to, to spend my life with the wine to understand how it is age. So if you ask me about my last 30 years, I can tell you that my magazine is the super. You can open in 1988, for example. I had uh, one uh, two months ago. Uh, it is super. So I'm very glad with that. And uh, for me, it was my, my, the challenge of my life. And interestingly, you make a Solera of Megasenis. You know, for many, many years, it was like, uh, for whom we make a Megasenis? We make a Megasenis for some guys, they have to drink it the next week. Or for some guys to put in the cellar and having that 20 years later. No, there's no answer. There's no answer. We know how our wine is 20 years later, but uh, there is people 
people drink it uh, just the next day. Huh? And so, speaking a lot about that, and having this day um, Mr. Konstantinos Lazarakis with us, uh, and actually, it's a great idea of him, he told us, okay, guys, let's do a Solera, which uh, having a lot of layers of old vintages and must show quickly. You have not to wait a lot uh, with, uh, with a Solera. It's what it is. Huh? We create a nice barrel of 1,000 liters. So every year, until now, we take out the 40% from this barrel to bottle. That's like uh, 500 bottles. And we put the 40% of the new vintage, the upcoming vintage of the, of the Megasinus. Attention, Megasinus, it's a wine we do from two different varieties. Uh, it's a wine we vinify differently and we blending at last time. So when we blend the Megasinus, waiting in our uh, tanks uh, for about uh, a month to be very well homogenized, then we take an amount from that which is already in the barrel, to go in another barrel. So it's a double barrel. Huh? And uh, the wine is really ready to be bottled. So this wine go to make our Solera. And every 10 years, we split our Solera to two new Soleras. And it is doing all that protocol of 40%, la 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 la. And it is a wine that uh, has a... Uh, a lot of beauty because of, of all those uh, layers of old vintages. When I have a glass of that wine, I spend uh, at least a half hour to smell it. Because it's, to me, it gives to um, the possibility to some vintages to show better and other, other to hide. And, and you know, it's, it's a meditation wine. <laughs> so what's been the key to growing Cabernet Sauvignon there? There's no, there's no significant thing. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, uh, thinking now, 30 years later, if I start and, and restart, and that was only Greek rights, 100% Greek rights. But there is a, a lot of local consumption and there is a lot of tourists coming to Greece. And, you know, <laughs> believe it or not, a lot of tourists, they are in Greece. They love to be in at their pool and having a glass of Chardonnay. Because sometimes what I've heard is that the international grape varieties sell more in Greece, where Greeks want something that is more cosmopolitan, but then the export markets are interested more in the indigenous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, you have uh, Cabernet Sauvignon from all over the world and uh, whatever. <laughs> believe me or not, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> to me, it's a dream. We sell Chardonnay in the United States. Come on. Greek Chardonnay in the United States, but you know that's market. And uh, but people look, and especially, you know, okay, United States, it's an open market. It is everything. We have the best wines all over the world existing here in New York, for example. But if you go to uh, to Europe, and for example, you go to France, and you you say that uh, there's a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, they say what? It's not possible to be accepted. But if you say that it's 100% Ayurgitico, Mavrotragan, or what else, that's very, very well accepted. And of course, that's right. 
for the future, what we do, it is, uh, yes, we uh, love to reschedule our portfolio and be back uh, to our uh, native varieties, of course. And we have a beautiful vineyard having saved some old varieties from Peloponnese. We work on them. We have a beautiful one, which is the Mavrosti for Argus. We work with that uh, the last uh, eight years. I think that uh, it's a singing wine. We will love to, to see that some in, in the future. And that's a red wine? It's a red wine. Is that a full-bodied red wine? or Mavrosti for means Mavro black and Stifo uh, sour. And it is like that. We started to, to make a red wine. It was not, it was undrinkable. A lot of tannins, unbelievable. And then I said, okay, let's do something like a ricciotto or like a namarone. And believe it or not, we have a wine full of body, unbelievable red color and uh, very nice tannins and beautiful sugars. Because we do, we started to do because we didn't know all the different styles of winemaking to make our red sweet wine. So we started to dry our grapes uh, under the sun, uh, to dry the grapes uh, under the shade, dry in special uh, rooms for that, to create, to make a wine like um, a port. So every year we do something different. And now we know that uh, the best style is the style we created the last two years, which is um, almost uh, Recioto style. Oh, interesting. And then you also make Moscofilo. Oh, yeah, that's my other love. I love Moscofilo. I feel just grateful to have this, this variety in the central of Peloponnese. Uh, central of Peloponnese, it is a cold area, a plateau magical at about 2,200 feet of uh, altitude, homogenized plateau. You have not, uh, it's not like the man. There's typicity. You have every Moscofilero existing there, and you understand that's it, the Moscofilero. Moscofilero grape variety, it's famous for the aromatics. So, for, you know, white flower and um, rose, uh, rose petals and... Uh, Violet a little bit, uh, just a bit of mint, and of course, some um, uh, citrusy, you know, some sweet lemon. Okay, normally, if you smell a glass of Moscofilero, you feel that, uh, like to, you will have a, an almost sweet wine, you know. But no, Moscofilero has an unbelievable acidity and freshness. It is a refreshing wine. You know, in the afternoon of a uh, beautiful summer day, you know, very well chilled. It's fantastic for having that with fruits like that, with uh, seafood. It's, it's our companion. And of course, uh, muscofilo, it is something which, uh, because of that, uh, it is uh, very acceptable from uh, the international markets. People like to have something like that. It's crisp. It's aromatic. It is um, what it is. Muscofilero, it is uh, famous to have like white wine, some rosé, but very, very light rosé also. And uh, yes, I started in 1989 with the Muscofilero. 
and I create without knowing my first gray wine. It was uh, my first harvest winemaking. So we had uh, some strikes of uh, electricity. So the electricity. And suddenly, my first night of my first vintage of my first winemaking, I was out of electricity. And I was furious. Unbelievable. And then the grapes stayed in, in the press, some of them, and some of them in their casks, you know. And next day, when the electricity was back, we just pressed, and we had a white and wine with a little bit of color, but an unbelievable wine. What aromatics was those? Unbelievable. We knew by that that we need, the, we need a little bit of skin color. So what we do now, it is to bring our beautiful uh, Moscow fillers and put in, uh, in the refrigerator for uh, 24 hours and take them very cold and then press them, uh, put in the press. And then in the press, what we do, it is uh, we have uh, without any movement, any movement of the press, uh, we just fill the press and then we wait for about two, three, four hours. It depends. It depends from the color, from um, the maturity and everything. And then we open the press and we take just the free running dress, which is like a 50 to 54%. And this is white. And we love that stuff. We do uh, low temperatures, uh, fermentations, you know, easy to do. And very quickly, bottling some January, February, very quickly. The wine, it is very nice to have fresh, two, three years, and that's all. And you work with a biotype of Moscow Filaro where it's a little darker color on the grape. Oh, yes. If you walk in the vineyard and you see the Moscow Filaro grapes, you will see a lot of different colors. And you realize that these are some clones of Moscow Filaro, but nobody had the time to, uh, you know, uh, to analyze them, to give a TPC to them. So we knew that uh, a kind of that, and I will explain what, it was very different to the others. So all those clones, they are named after the color they have on the grape skins. Okay? So we have the Asprofilero for the white Moscofilero, the Coquinofilero for the red Moscofilero, the Xanthophilero for the blonde Moscophilero, many others, and you have the Mavrofilero. Hmm. The Mavrofilero, we knew that it is something very nice, with um, nice aromas uh, and uh, nice minerality. So what we did in uh, 2004, we created a vineyard just by choosing from other vineyards just the Mavrofileros. And we create that, you know, in a primary way. But we work a lot and we have uh, a beautiful, like, 95% of Bavro filler in this vineyard. And we started. And we did some wine. We call that uh, the Salto. And uh, this wine, uh, we work on, uh, on wild yeast. Why? Because the wild yeast in uh, white wine give a lot of creaminess. And this Moscophilos, it's only 11 to 12 degrees of alcohol and a lot of acid in, in them. The creaminess, it's something very important. 
gives the wine some, you know, some nice presence. So we try to work on uh, the wild yeast and upon to the first five degrees of alcohol. And then we inoculate other yeast from the same vineyard, you see. So we have two inoculations, one wild yeast from the same vineyard and another saccharomyces from the same vineyard. And there is a saltiness under the tongue to the wine. How do you see the Greek wine industry showing in 20 years from now? With a lot of life, you know, a lot of beautiful wines, young guys, and a lot of... Uh, uh, for me, Greece is still an, an Eldorado. I mean, it's still something... I believe that uh, in, in the terroir, the Greek terroir, there are a lot of values because, uh, you know, land, it is something difficult. It needs real people to work. And uh, this is a little bit tricky, you know. So if people, they take the decision to work with their land, I'm sure that we will have a lot of beautiful wine in Greece. You mentioned something interesting to me, which was that in light of the financial crisis, there's been many more wineries created in Greece, which is not what I would have assumed, but it's the case by quite a bit in terms of numbers. Yeah. What happens suddenly? Suddenly there's an economical crisis. And what are you doing? You go back to your land. That's in Greece. You know, in Greece, by 80s, it was like 70 wineries all over Greece. That's all. And then 2008, it was 500. And from then to now, it is 1,030. Now, why? Because people comes back. Because people find that uh, there's another way to make money and, uh, you know, survive. And uh, people come back to, to their land. And uh, I love to see uh, families who own grapes, who own vines. And uh, one of their kids uh, will be an enologist and a winemaker. And then the other, I don't know what, uh, marketing or what, whatever. And all together try to have a model like... Um, 30, 40, 50,000 bottles and make money with that. The better it comes. I, I believe to that. And I believe that um, we have to be enough to create style and to, to give to our country the name a wine country. Because, you know, the number of the wineries is something crucial. It is something very important. We, the, let's say, pioneers, this generation, we try to work on that and to give to the new generation better conditions than we had. That's it. George Skouros found a Eldorado in Greece as a young man, and he thinks it's still available. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much, Levy. George Skouros of the Skouros Winery in Greece. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the 
crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. It is uh, like the famous uh, Syrah and Viognier, you know, the most of the people think that uh, we have to put uh, just a Syrah and Viognier and that, no, it's not, not that, it's not that at all. Syrah Viognier was like the lease of, of the Viognier went to the Syrah and uh, people after year by the year, they, uh, they, they thought, they think that uh, the, the Syrah didn't lose the color. It was much, much better for that. And that comes for the lease. Yeah. The lease, the lease it is, it's something very important.